Hello and welcome to episode 31 of Songs from a Padded Envelope. My name is Ben and I'm here with co-host Steve. Hello, Steve. Hello, Ben. (laughs) Regular listeners to the podcast will know that Steve always handles the intro to the show. But on this occasion, it felt entirely appropriate to reverse our roles. For this episode, we were fortunate to be able to welcome the inimitable Cal Coughlin onto the show. Cal helmed the wonderful micro Disney throughout the 1980s and following that, the equally marvellous, though very different, Fatima Mansions. And he's continued to make music under various guises to this very day. Steve, it would be safe to describe you as a lifelong fan of his music. And whilst expectations for this conversation were high, the realisation did not disappoint in any shape or form. Steve, this was a fascinating and engaging conversation from start to finish. Yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I feel very lucky uh, to have had a chance to speak to, for us to have had a chance to speak to Cal for about his music. And it was a proper shot in the dark, you know, on on uh, on Twitter to... Um, to with with Cal becoming more kind of active on social media around the release of new music, um, it was too much of a temptation to uh, to not reach out and ask the question about coming on the show. And and we have a our, our dear friend Nainesh uh, is linked to a studio that uh, that Cal had recorded some stuff in as well. So it just felt like oh maybe there's a maybe there's a an opportunity or there's a possibility that he might want to share something with us. And 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 uh, he was immediately enthusiastic about the idea which was for me uh initially a terrifying prospect but mm. also hugely exciting because um yeah he is uh he is someone that that's been in uh you know sort of soundtracked my life you know from a from around about 14 when i first heard um as is often discussed on our podcast i heard micro disney's birthday girl single on on john peel who was a, a real fan of uh of, of micro disney um it's a wonderful peel session as well that they did um uh yeah so i asked for the the clock comes down the stairs album for christmas which i got along with um seven days in sammy's town by wall of voodoo <laughs> which i asked for and uh i think i heard i think i heard far side of crazy on uh janice long maybe or something like that uh and uh and the uh the the the, the, uh, the darley's car album um pete murphy from bauhaus and mick khan from japan both of those two bands i really loved so i thought well maybe but yeah that yeah, that, no. that's, that that stayed with me less <laughs> <laughs> um uh although it's a it's a it's a lovely pretentious gatefold it really is very beautifully <laughs> Um, what are you thinking, fellas? But Clock Comes Down the Stairs, just, yeah, it's such a, such a big record for me. And actually, I was lucky enough to go over to uh, there uh, when Michael Disney reformed to play um, uh, in, in, in Dublin at the Music Hall um, to receive their uh, inauguration into the, uh, the Hall of Fame there. And they did their reform shows for that. And that was stunning because I never got to see Michael Disney when they were you know in full swing so to go and see that reform show was was something else yeah special what a great thing well Mm. um people are in for a real treat at the end of this episode because cal shared three versions of the song officer material from his album from 2000 black river falls including demos that were made in 97 and 98 along with the final version that appears on the album and we're going to have them all in line at the end of the show and steve it's a brilliant opportunity to get a real insight 
into the evolution of a song from its very inception. Yeah, I mean, it just what what a what a fascinating insight it is, and um, the you get to you get to see the evolution of the song uh, uh, from a sort of creative uh, a musical perspective. You know, it's very different first version to the final version that appeared on the black river falls album but um and you can kind of hear the evolution of the ideas and but finding the essence of the song um through the demoing process which i think is it's, it's something i'm really fascinated by and it was great to hear cal talking about that but also talking about um how uh you know things that were taking place in the world around him his personal life and and his move away from sort of expectations about the sort of music that he was making and trying to break away from something and you can you you hear that too and uh, the way that he articulates that progression i think is really fascinating and, and it and it reveals a um something about the creative process from a you know a, a, a personal from the way that personal circumstances can influence the creative output i think is is really fascinating and really really lucky to have that on the show Oh yeah, like like you say, it was an opportunity to hear about the significance of the song as part of a, a process of kind of reinventing himself musically. And that drive to challenge himself creatively forms a common thread throughout Cal's story, doesn't it? Yeah, and I think you can hear that again now in 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 the new music that's that he's making and uh the uh the new record, the 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 music that he's released from that just is is you know, te testimony to 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 that and the stuff that he talks about in the episode about collaboration and and um, what he's trying to do with his music and and being excited about the music that he's making and um, and you know ideas around legacy and and the restrictions of the sort of current situation with uh, the pandemic and 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 lockdown. Um, so yeah, it's really fascinating and and he speaks to that the, the journey of his music. You know, throughout his career, he speaks to it with, as you would expect, his 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 trademark lyricism. It's it's a great listen. Yeah, I mean, he's he's, he's a really bright mind, and his his erudite nature. And uh, uh, one thing, like you say, one thing that I really took from the conversation was the the warmth and humility and generosity that Cal expressed when he was discussing some of his significant musical partners. And it was a it was a really refreshing stance, wasn't it? Mm, absolutely i love i love the way he talks about what other people can bring to his music through their music through, through their own talents um you know talking about uh the uh, james woodrow the guitar player and uh and and a number of you know a number of other people that he's worked with throughout his career and what those people bring to his music um and and how they enhance it and the the dynamics that people bring i mean it's just he talks about it in the way that you would just love to work. <laughs> it's it's uh, it's inspiring and um, um, yeah, a real treat to get to hear it. Mm. Well, I think um, you know uh, the perceived wisdom is that um, it's best not to meet your 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 heroes. But I think um, your immediate reflection after the conversation with with Cal was that that wasn't the case in this in in this in this instance, was it? No, no, it was the it was the absolute opposite of that, and um, it, it was so, yeah, really really generous, and and I feel I feel very lucky to have uh, had the chance to uh, to nerd out a little bit as well as I think I mentioned in the episode, you know, and and to to have some, you know, it was I had to resist so many questions because <laughs> you know that we'd have been there all day, but um, yeah, to ask a few more nerdier 
uh, questions uh, that he was more than happy to in, in, indulge as well. And, yeah. I, you know, at the end of the conversation after we'd finished recording, um, to, to stay on and have a, a bit of a chat about uh, Bertie's brochures, which is a song I particularly love and uh, and have an affinity to. So, um, yeah, thanks, Cal. Yeah. Well, like you say, thanks to Cal for giving up his time to come on the show and share his stories and experiences. It was a really great opportunity for us. Um, if you're enjoying the podcast, please do head over to Apple HQ and leave us a nice five-star review. And thanks to everybody who's listened to the show so far. So on that note, let's go over to our conversation with Carl Coughlin on episode 31 of Songs from a Padded Envelope. Um, I'm Carl Coughlin, and I believe at the end of the podcast, you're going to hear three versions of the song Officer Material. Well, Carl, thanks so much for making time to come on the podcast and for sharing these versions of Officer Material with us. Can we just start by asking you what you recall about the initial inspiration behind the song? The initial inspiration behind the song was my idea of myself as someone who didn't fit in to the social situation where I was born and... um, being on the outside of it and um, somewhat lower social station than some of the people I came into contact with in education and stuff like that. And there were a few relationships I had along the way where that came across quite strongly. You would be treated as an equal for a time and then gradually the social uh, fissures would, um, would manifest themselves and the memory of that stuck with me for quite a long time. And at the time when I wrote the song, it was the late 1990s. And um, I'd been, the last records I had made with the Fatima Mansions had been, you might say, my usual fare of satirical, somewhat comic vituperation. Um, and... Um, through a few years of not being able to make records because of a contractual problem. Um, I, that kind of satirical thing became kind of puerile. Uh, It just got more and more and more puerile. And after about four years of this, and I'm not joking, um, after about four years of this, God, I thought, God, I I need to try something else. So um, I began kind of digging into my past and uh, I guess you would say really fictionalizing things that have happened to me because clearly none, none of the things in that song really happened to me. But um, it, the, the, the version that I ended up recording sort of has a beginning a bit like, um, a little bit like the English patient or something where an, an extramarital um, adventure has gone severely wrong and, uh, you know, th- there's nothing left but steaming wreckage. And when you when you pulled the song together, did you feel like that that you'd managed to kind of escape from the, the that sort of the music that you felt you'd been trapped into making? Um. Yeah, I, I had escaped. Yeah, I, I had escaped a trap that I was in. All right, but I mean, the the thing was that um, 
according as my isolation and uh, my contractual problem just rumbled on, um, nobody was really putting any pressure on me to make any kind of music because nobody, nobody really wanted to hear anything I might be doing. Um, so I had a, a lot of freedom in one sense, but morale, you know, I had a lot of problems with morale. And um, somehow around about 1997, I rounded a corner and wrote songs like Black River Falls, which was the title of that album, and Payday, and, and, and yeah, quite a lot of that material. And I found this new direction around acoustic instruments and especially double bass. Um, for some reason, well, I, I can tell you, it's a really boring reason. Um, uh, double bass samples for, for the for the Akai sampler were quite plentiful, and some of them were actually quite interesting songs. So um, one thing fortunately led to another. I, I made a really good double bass player who I worked with for many years thereafter and still friendly with. So uh, sometimes it takes some plastic replica to kind of get you in the in, in, in the zone for something. I mean, I realized I was never going to be Massive Attack <laughs> or things like that, that, you know, tricky or, or something like that, you know, the things that I, I liked. Um, it was a bit like becoming a teenager again in a terrible kind of way, I suppose. Um, rediscovering a reason for making music, uh, using simple, cheap components, you know, and hoping to build that into something bigger. I wonder, just li listening to you talk about the sort of extricating yourself from a particular, from, from a set of uh, uh, circumstances uh, and, and also going into your past and thinking about difficult situations and articulating those through your lyric writing. Um, I wonder if that's kind of mirrored in the, in the evolution of officer material in that how long it took and also the, the sort of the way that it evolved from you know, to, to something completely unrecognizable by the, the third or fourth iteration from that first demo in, in, in 97. Um, am I, am I sort of reading too much into that? Or do you think that do you think there's something in that, you know, there's a you know, wrestling with something that actually is a little mansions esque in that first 1997 version in that, that, um, the, the verse vocals for sure and you know did you deliberately you, you know recorded those and then deliberately kind of now i, I want to get further away from that is am i reading that right do you think well uh i think i think so yeah yeah um what happened was when we did the first version it was uh Difficult to let go of a lot of these ideas I had about little synth noises and peripheral fiddling about. And um, I was working with a group of people who I... Well, it was a mixture of people. I mean, the rhythm section comprised Nick Bagnall on bass. Nick had been the keyboard player in Mansions from a, a great part of... Well, over half the time we were going, uh, but he is also a very capable bass player. Um, 
and the drummer was Paul Murphy, who'd been the drummer in the late stages of the Mansions. Um, he didn't actually, unfortunately, play on any of the albums, but he, he did the tour for our final album. So that was the rhythm section. The guitar player was James Woodrow, who I, st I still work with today. Um, so I suppose in, 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 in a way, my, my head was halfway between two places. The personnel was halfway between two places. Uh, the the kind of the sort of rumbly dobby kind of bass is kind of like lost in the former west in 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 in, in a kind of a way. Most of all, though, I mean, I didn't have my my objectivity wasn't very intact. Um, I'd been way too close to this material for way too long. But I was, I, you know, I, I I was telling myself, I'm persevering, I'm persevering. And um, the, there was no light coming in. It was only when I, when we recorded that demo and nothing much happened with that and a few other ones recorded in the same session that I was forced to take a step back and do some other things. And I did some music for other people. I did, did a film soundtrack. Um, I came back to it and I thought, hang on a minute. Um, we need to open this right up and give it some drama. And I just literally put my hands on the piano and something came out, which is <laughs> what you want to happen, you know, but you can't plan. And, um, and because I, I came up with that sort of da, 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 sort of arpeggiating, slowly arpeggiating thing, it had all that space and it had, and it had a kind of an inbuilt drama to it. And the, and the, and the words just, evolved from there you know i mean I, I i i felt i had something good on the chorus and it didn't need a radical mm -hmm. overhaul you know but one ended up building to the other it was just a, just a just a, a nice accident you know when you come back to it now cal and put the two versions against each other the you know the final iteration that you came up with and that first version how does that make you feel how do you reflect on that well, I, I think I was lucky that I came out of the tunnel. I was in when doing the first one because it would have been quite easy to just get buried in a, I don't know, how, how, how to term it, a kind of a, a self-justification that stops you changing when something manifestly does need to change. Um, many times, for one reason or another, usually logistics, you're in the studio, there's there's budget being spent. There's no time to reinvent the wheel unless you're you know, Prince or, you know, Joni Mitchell or Bob Dylan in their heyday, you know, that <laughs> who, who can seemingly turn on a dime. I've never really been one of those people. Um, so, uh, yes, I, I, I'm, I'm lucky that the first one wasn't done when it was when the meter was running and something had to be had to be placed in aspic, you know. Hmm. Uh, mentioning James, the guitar player. I mean, it, it, he is an incredible guitar player, and just like some some of the work that he's done on your music is is amazing. What's that? Um, discovering uh, or uh, working alongside him initially on on this. Um, bunch of songs um how was that collaborative process how, how what did that bring to it 
did that assist in that kind of opening out that you were looking for? Um, it gave me a whole new set of ideas for sound and expression um, that I hadn't really been next to before. <clears throat> and um, I'm quite a big fan of his work with um, with Gavin Bryars. Um, and I had, I had been already. In fact, well, he was working with a composer um, who had been a pupil of Briars, named Jeff Smith, who, who recorded for, for Kitchenware um, when, when I was there. So I, I had heard his work on a couple of Jeff's albums. And um, I mean, I can't, you know, I can't claim to be a, a, a great tactician or, or theoretician of sound. I just like the sound of things by, by and large. And uh, I had been a you know, I, I really like a lot of Bill Frizzell records. Um, so someone who knows their way around kind of volume swell with expression um gets my attention and it's surprisingly hard to do um it, there's only really james and frizzell that i can think of who do it to that level you know i mean sometimes mark rebo will do a little of it but he's known for something completely different obviously um so um when the chance to work with him presented itself I jumped at that and we, we, the four of us just started rehearsing a bit somewhere around 96, 97. And then we did, did those demos and then nothing happened for a while. And so everything kind of regrouped and I went to do Black River Falls finally for, for cooking vinyl when, when the legal problems were at an end, uh, and the well, without going into really, really monotonous detail, the the um, there was a, a suggestion to that um, Dave Gregory uh, play on on quite a lot of Black River Falls, which he did with great distinction, and he's 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 a lovely guy and a, a great player. Um, but the Bacon singer on. Um, on Black River Falls, that, uh, that song, I um, I believe I contacted James because we had done a demo of it, and I said, "Do you mind if I reuse your guitar from the demo?" And that was fine. And the song Black River Falls um, was very, very problematic. So I sent him the sheet music, and he called me straight back and played it to me on the phone, um, which. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Uh, was a bit of a bit of an eye opener. Um, so it became clear from there, really, that um, a solid direction was being set. Um, and likewise, Danny Manners coming in on double bass uh, in place of the Akai sampler was uh, something of a revelation. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, you know, I, I, I was a bit less green when it came to that than on some other things because 
you know, I've been a fan of that instrument for many years. I mean, in large part, down to the work of Danny Thompson, John Martin, and some Richard Thompson mid-period records and that sort of thing. Um, and Donovan, of course. In, in terms of right, in terms of working with other people, do you prefer to develop new ideas alongside a writing partner, or do the, the, do the sort of seeds of songs start? with just yourself or is it working with someone else? Um, it varies in recent times. I've been lucky that the old orthodoxy for me has broken down. Th that orthodoxy was me on my own, needing to make sure there was a guardrail just to fall back on and uh, needing to work at my own pace. Um, a lot of it was about pace, um, not wanting to either try other people's patience or have mine tried um, by just the length of time it can take for in, in a writing session for one or other person to come up with something that sticks. Um, I just got out of the habit of doing that and I, I didn't believe that it was better to be doing stuff on my own, but it seemed like the only way forward after Micro Disney, really. I, I thought I was going to just have to keep doing that. And I did for many years, and it's a, the isolation is self-perpetuating. But um, uh, a number of things happened in more recent times. I, I, was work, I worked with Sean O'Hagan on some songs for his album, plus some other bits and bobs and that worked really well um, and it was really useful to to do it with someone I'd done it so much with in the past because we just kind of evolved this thing this time around where one of us would come with an idea and kind of dominate the that writing session it would all just be about that, that idea and not not going back to zero on it and that, that worked well. Um, and it was a bit like getting back on a on a horse who'd fallen off, really, in a way, I suppose. I mean, I don't mean to refer to Sean as a horse. I'm not <laughs> yeah. doing that. But, uh, but, ne but nevertheless, um, that was the, the, the kind of principle rebuilding, uh, of rebuilding my uh, confidence and my ability to to contribute something in a situation like that. And then in, in more recent times, I've done a whole album in collaboration with um, Jackknife Lee, um, which will be coming out later on this year. And that was a long distance thing. I mean, he and I know each other from way back in the day in Ireland. I mean, he, he's a critical something like eight years younger than I am, but nevertheless, uh, we met when he was a kind of teenage boy genius and uh, he's gone on to great things and we re-established contact last year and uh, we, we just started exchanging while well, he was originating tracks and sending them to me and I kind of mess about over the top and send it back and you know as, as the, a, a long distance to and fro and that's worked really well. It was a really, you know, it was a really fast and um, 
frequently hilarious um, experience. Another one of uh, another sort of creative uh, from a, a, a kind of history of some really um, diverse and brilliantly creative um, writing partners, you know, collaborators. And just, I, I was interested in you talking about breaking that orthodoxy and um, how much of the, the work that you did in France with uh, Francois Ribat and, and Ava Schwab and, and the, the musical theatre work, how much that fed into that process for you as well and, and what that brought into your own songwriting? Um, the answer, the, the quick answer is a lot. Um, it's uh, working on the first opera that I that they they cast me in um called kie fu uh which they're now working on an, an album of um uh, i i mean i can't begin to describe the number of new things it, it it brought to me i mean the orchestra uh it was i think i think I've, i i can't count it up right now it was about 14 pieces so it was the largest ensemble of its, uh, you know, playing original music that I, I had sung with, and um, and it was a really eclectic mix of arrangement ideas. I mean, Francois is just a terrific arranger, and he's he's the French version of an autodidact, um, which is to say that there's nothing. There's nothing outsider about it, frankly. You know, he kind of comes up with the actual goods, but at the same time, he is able to play around with his own role in it and reinvent things in a seemingly off-the-cuff manner. Um, it's it's not like the kind of uh, the Prince type thing I was referring to a moment ago, where you know the whole, the whole band are sent away and you know, the boy genius re-records all the parts. Um, Francois is more co much more collaborative than that, but um, his approach to ha really beautiful harmony um, inspired me a lot. Um, the way he uses the acoustic guitars and the accordion, um, you know, like a lot of people, probably I would have been dismissive of that whole family of instruments, except maybe for John John Kirkpatrick and um, uh, Tony McMahon. You know, but, but people operating in in a, in a in a British or Irish folk music environment. But it's a it's a whole universe of other stuff. Oh, and I I, I liked Astor Piazzolla, but um, but there's a particular way of using the instrument where it really can conjure a multitude and you don't and if you if used in the right combination it isn't this big fat dominant thing at all it's just this kind of almost imperceptible um tonal color that mm -hmm. really fattens up the harmony without making you realize exactly what's what's taking place um so that, that that was the thing the other singers were great um uh yeah i mean that production was a watershed for me in the way the way that i hear music and the, it um uh, i had written quite a lot of the songs on this guy's awful blue the following album 
but it really toughened my resolve to record them in a certain way, um, you know, which was quite spare and, uh, you know, uh, hermetic almost. It was done in a really small studio. But uh, it was really when I went to do the stuff I did in the mid-2000s, the Flannery's Mounted Head stage show and the Faubourg album, um, I, you know, I felt I had to step up to the kind of things I had experienced in, 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 in France. And I think by that stage, I, we had done um, uh, Le, Le Petit Traité Pop, um, um, yeah, I'm pretty sure that had happened by then. So that was the second show with Francois and Eva. Um, yeah, but in, in terms of collaborating on material, the the only time we've yet uh, collaborated on an actual tune was on um, the third show, um, uh, La Nuit de Vos, um, on Sunny Suntown Daydream, which has lyrics by Martin Newell, um, which are brilliant, um, and kind of describing a sort of a part-time hippie life in um, in in the small towns of the British home counties sometime in the late 60s. And I, I, the, the, the task I was set was to put together a, a sort of a collage backing track that sounds something like Sunshine Pop, but is actually quite dissonant and sort of <laughs> strange. Um, so, um, uh, yeah, the, 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 uh, I was in America at the time, so it was something we had to do remotely through the post. But that was the only actual collaboration we've done thus far. But um, uh, he has been a big figure in my musical evolution. Cal, watching that, um, watching the Flannery documentary and the, particularly the footage of um, that first production with Francois and Eva, it felt like a very bold move for you, like you were pushing yourself into a very, very kind of different zone. Was that hard for you to do, to sort of put yourself out there? Um, it was a little bit. Um but I, I, I had to be kind of a bit shameless, you know, um, and it possibly made me a bit of a pain to deal with at at at, at that stage. But I was lucky that I, I was I was I was surrounded by encouraging people. Um, Ava is really experienced when it comes to making theatre with people who haven't done it before. Um, Everything from, you know, she lived in post-revolutionary Iran um, as a, you know, a socialist, um, I guess you'd say revolutionary, uh, because the, the thing people forget about the the Iranian revolution was that it was predominantly a, a, a left-wing uprising against the Shah, which ended, you know, was successful and then was usurped by, by, by Khomeini. Um, but uh, so, yeah, Ava worked there and in provincial France and in Berlin and, and so on. So she was used to dealing with ignoramuses like me. Um, 
and that really helped. And there were several other people in the, in the production. And I, the reason I was willing and open about all of this was I'd, I'd been stuck in a box for five years and um, I was willing to be really kind of blue screened into anything that I thought had artistic worth. And I, I, I certainly felt this production did, you know, I mean, I couldn't quite believe it was one of those moments where I couldn't quite believe my ears when I was sent the material. I just thought at last, you know, because, um, you know, one of my formative musical influences was Kurt Weill, um, and, and the other musical collaborators, Alberto Brecht. So, um, uh, I mean, while this, you know, the, this production wasn't just that, it was, it was, it was way closer to that vein than I was ever going to get by being in some band that was signed to Universal Music, you know. So I was, I was just willing to do whatever it took, you know, within reason, with my clothes on. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well. Uh, just going back to officer material, as there's another aspect of the song which develops in a really interesting way through the demos, and and I think is a is a really strong facet of the vocals across your body of work, which is you harmonising with yourself, and the that aspect of your recorded vocals is so effective and affecting, and I just wondered what consideration you give uh, to doing that on your on your songs. I'm not a great uh, arranger of vocals, and I've been around a few people who are, um, particularly Sean O'Hagan, obviously. Yeah. Um, and I'm so I don't fit into choral vocals all that well, uh, and I'm not altogether sure why. I think it's the, it's the timbre of my voice and the fact that having been a lead singer for so long, I find it quite difficult to sing in a neutral way so that you actually just hit the pitch dead on uh, with minimal, minimal vibrato or any other kind of um, in, in, in inflection or anything that gets in the way. And it, it does get in the way if vocals are stacking up and there is one that's kind of just like sticking out. So the best thing I can do, because I mean, I've, but that said, I enjoy stacking up vocals. So the, the best the, the best person I can do it with is myself, because I'm not going to mess myself up. Um, up to recently, I hadn't found anybody else who can sing with me in a, you know, just one on one, perhaps that that sounds like a really close blend. But not as you know but but pleasantly different from me you know that's that's the kind of the 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 alchemy um of it no i mean i i guess i could name people who i well i i i name one that's completely non applicable the everly brothers for example or the or or the or the three wilson brothers um where you've got sufficient similarity but sufficient difference um so again being sort of at liberty uh, and not thinking about what material was going to sound like when reproduced live or if it could be reproduced live or if there would be a chance 
um i i was just an officer material on some of those other songs i i was just trying um tr trying that and on on the album of mine I, i've just done i'm doing it an awful lot um and it, it is really stacked up uh simply because by the time i got to the vocals we were locked down and there was no there were no options uh but there was one song um which heavily features John Bennett, um, who was the guitar player in the High Lamas for several albums and sang with Micro Disney. I, I played guitar with Micro Disney on the, on the Reformation shows. And um, uh, our voices are a really great blend. So um, I think that's something I'm going to be doing with, with John again. Um, Thank you, thank you for indulging that question. Uh, oh, no, no it. problem. I mean, it's a, it's a bit of a pet topic of mine, actually. I mean, oh great, let's, it, let's it, carry it, on. It's, it's, it's a, it's, it's a bit of a geekorama one, though, you know. Um, yeah. Um, well, as as we're talking about uh, demo tapes on this podcast, and I'll I'll, I'll no no doubt allude to this in in the introduction, but I, I am a lifelong fan of your work. And, and back in the days of Fatma Mansions, I I did pursue the band across the UK, and have some really fond memories of those gigs and speaking with you and and the guys in the band uh, a few times, and actually handing you a demo tape of my band. Uh, I think it was outside the junction in Cambridge. <laughs> Uh, but was that a common occurrence for you to be given demo tapes or to be sought out uh, for a helping hand by a, an aspiring young rock star? Um, it was fairly common and I was atrocious at, at listening um, uh, or even keeping a hold of, 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 of things. I, I would normally have a big bag of cassettes with me on, on tour and many of those things got mislaid along the way. So I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> I, can't, I can't imagine you sticking them on in the bus, you know, and oh, I've been given this tape. Let's check it out. <laughs> and it goes, um, yeah. It wouldn't have been unreasonable to have done that, actually. My favourite instance of somebody doing that is, is my friend Neil, who um, very excitedly gave a demo tape of his band to Jerry Sadowitz. <laughs> Oh jeez! <laughs> really? <laughs> Jerry, Jerry, Jerry! <laughs> and this was after we'd just seen him as well. I don't know what he was expecting to happen. <laughs> An aspect of your work which is often spoken of is your lyric writing and your use of language and characters which populate your songs. Given the constraints and frustrations of um, sometimes of the songwriting process. Have you ever explored other outlets for writing outside of music making? And in asking that, we, you know, we had a conversation with um, with Bruce Russell from the New Zealand band The Dead Sea just, a, you know, a few weeks ago, and he was talking about his kind of stretching into writing academically about the making of music and the um, uh, kind of contrasting sound of recordings from. 50s and 60s against modern production and that but have you ever kind of thought about writing outside of music well creative writing uh no no not not, not really um i mean uh, yes I, I i have considered it um and it's one of those things like guitar playing which um it always feels like it's too late um, somehow, 
Um, I suppose at this stage it does feel like I should probably write some kind of recollections down so that um, my family will have something to look at uh, further on. But I, I, hmm, I like the economy of writing song words. Um, I've been accused of being irresponsible for favoring that over something more uh, um, some more extended form where one has to, um, you know, actually face up to what it is that, you know, lies behind the, 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 the key images or, or, um, or shards of meaning that might come through a, 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 a song lyric. And I agree with that assessment up to a point, but at the same time, I think there is a beauty in the uh, the economy of it. Uh, I mean, insofar as I can be accused of being economical, because I mean, you know, <laughs> compared to a lot of people who I, whose work I like, um, uh, I, do, I don't seem to have the ability to repeat phrases um in the way that others do to to great effect you know um like take robert forster for example you know i mean robert can can have the same five word phrase in the song 20 times and it'll mean something different each time um i'm too giddy you know i think um so it, it is something I've wrestled with when ideas have come to me, like um, Bertie's brochures are the original um, uh, Flannery's molded head idea and stuff. I mean, I have produced like tracks of stuff, um, but it always seemed better to break it out into songs or just like slash it down into songs. And um, I think what's been happening with me the last, year or two is that uh, um, I'm getting a bit of a second wind for not explaining myself too much, um, which is very welcome because um, I just don't think it travels very well in songs. It doesn't matter whether you're, whether you're Randy Newman or, or, or Scott Walker or um, the guy from Snapped Ankles um, or Sleaford Mods or whoever, you know, too much explicatory material kind of defeats the whole purpose of, of the thing. And then you really are better, you know, writing, you know, prose or, or long-form poetry or what, what, whatever, you know. Um, I mean, a good friend of mine um, said in print that while the, the, the words are, are, are of good quality, they are somewhat anti-poetic. And I think, I, I, you know, I, 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 I draw strength from that assessment. So, Carl, there's a, there's a quote for you in the Adventures of uh, Flannery documentary where you say that you believe that you get better as you get older, despite what conventional wisdom might suggest. And I just wanted to ask what your thoughts on that are uh, these days. It isn't something I can order with, without a certain amount of trepidation um, at, at this point. I mean, I 
think that interview was probably done about, oh God, well over a decade ago. Um, um, I think the, the material I've been writing over the last couple of years is the most consistent I've done in terms of quality since Michael Disney, probably. Um, it, you know, consistency-wise. And as as to others' reaction to it, I do not mean to prejudge. Um, I think there probably does come a point where one hits diminishing returns simply because of the frailties of the body and the... Uh, and what the mind will do to your situation. Um, I don't know whether I'm there yet, but I think uh, one possible acid test of of somebody who makes music is the degree of grace with which they can face that and whether they just um, repeat themselves, you know, produce new material, but it just trades on old glories or uh um or whether they do what david bowie did on black star and leonard cohen did on his last couple of albums and just ride the ride that missile all the way to the to the to the explosion you know um um that is the grim reality. <laughs> those, I think those, those are the choices. And being that much closer to, to the escape hatch uh, than I was when I uttered those words, um, I feel this trepidation and the possibility of being proven wrong, if, if, if nothing else, you know. Um, I, I, well, I, I think possibly what was going through my head then was kind of revolting against the uh, the ageism that was a lot more rife at that time because it was still kind of the slipstream of of Britpop almost um, at that stage. I mean, a lot of that stuff was still kind of clinging on to its latter-day stadium life and... Um, it seemed that uh, that there was just one received wisdom, and inst- instead we're we're living in this balkanized cultural world where every little niche has its own has its own received wisdom, and you know maybe a lot of that stuff is delusional in in just in in other ways. You know, I mean the the two thousands, I guess, were when that kind of you know one set of music magazines and one one set of radio programs still held quite a lot of sway and and, and we hadn't, you know, come to where we are today. Well, uh, Cal, talking of quality, your new single song of Coaklan is fantastic. Can you share a bit about the evolution of that song in particular and the work on the new album? Uh, Believe it or not, um, song of Coaklan, the song began with me trying to write a a dissident, uh, uh, sorry, a dissonant bluegrass type song, because I had this idea in my head of doing a kind of a a string band, um, 
uh, but instead of playing old time music, you play kind of twelve tone um, uh, discordant uh, confrontational <laughs> music. Um, it never really got anywhere, but um, uh, the, um, some of the ideas I had wound up turning it somehow turning into the verse. I think it was of that song. And then a friend of mine, um, just out of the blue, sent me uh, a piece of text that he had, in, presumably in a, in, a, in a particularly dull moment, he had generated this text by pasting one of my old lyrics into um, into Google Translate and translating it into, I think, Indonesian, Greek, um, Korean, and then back into English. And... Uh, it came up with some pretty fabulous um, phrases, and there was this kind of stream of. Uh, I mean, I suppose it was kind of a caught up in a, in a, in a, in, a, in, a, in a weird kind of kind of way, and the word coaklan was there, and I thought, well, I'm having that and having a few of the other bits as well. But I'm I'm too much of a temperer to to just uh, you know auto auto uh, echo, and I. But it gave me a direction for the thing. It gave me a sense of um, not needing to have a plan for what was going to happen through this verse and this verse, which is a way that I work sometimes, but not not if I can help it. Um, it is better if there is some way of making the thing flow without having to having to uh, you know be a be a microbiology student about it like I was when I was twenty one. You know, um, so um, that was kind of the beginning of it, and I thought, yeah, cheap and cheesy organ, yeah, that's that's good. And uh, some, you know, eight-bit synth, you know, that kind of thing. Um, so that was that, and a lot of the other initial material for the album came out of similar kind of failed experiments in um, colliding, uh, colliding styles with the way that I write. Um, but initially, I thought, well, I'm just going to start doing. Uh, I'll do a bunch of songs, um, get some people together, we play them in gigs, and just start recording them in batches and and sticking them on Bandcamp, you know, because it had been so long since I put anything out under my own name um, or any of my own names, and um, uh, that was the plan. But um, I put I wrote quite a lot of new material, but then we I started doing live planning for playing live, and we did Kilkenny Arts Festival, me and the Grand Necropolitan Quartet, and uh, mid twenty nineteen, and um, some of the material worked, and some of it hadn't worked. Oh, some of it hadn't got through uh, rehearsal, so. Um, things in my personal life became a bit shaky and 
that sort of sidetracked things and I, I started doing some recording uh, some of which isn't on the album but will be coming out before too much longer and then the lockdown happened and so everything was absolutely tickety-boo um, but luckily all the drums were done for an album's worth of material so lo and behold it's an album um, and um, that was the kind of shell of it um, but I, I, I my thought was to sort of do something like Bob Dylan when he put out Love and Theft said it's like uh, greatest hits without any hits and uh um that became my, my my working model actually um i mean i'm not cynically cherry picking anything that i don't want to do um but there is a lot of spread and some things that sound like things people expect from me and some things which i hope they don't um uh, but it's it's it is from the heart you know cal thank you so much for coming on to the podcast uh it's a it's a proper treat to speak to you um and for giving us your time and, and, and indulging um some of the more nerdier questions that we've asked you this evening oh, so so it's, a, it's, it's always a pleasure to answer nerdier questions because uh, the answers come more naturally to me than uh, perhaps um some more philosophical ones <laughs> <laughs> um can we just finish off please with you introducing the demos that people are going to hear now please so you're about to hear um three different versions of the song Officer Material by me, Cahill Coughlin, um, which were recorded between 1997 and 1999. Thanks, Cahill. Yeah, thanks, Cahill. Days the world now forget Mention the rest. 
against how I lost her with love. Days the world now forgets, failure builds me in blood. How she moved to the light through the force of her will. How I buried my life, how I wasted still. He knew I stole. Just grand 
mist is gently falling But her feet still hold the road Faithful was the last word that he uttered Before he swerved his ceremonial sword Faithful like a clock, a dog, a servant
was the last word that he uttered Before he swerved his ceremonial sword Faithful like a dog, a clock, a servant She knows he's better off dead Better loved, better served, better fed And she came down From officer material I never asked her why Seems like even now Even her shadow seems Songs from a Padded Envelope is presented, produced and edited by Steve Swindon and Ben Clay. Music is by state-sponsored Jukebox. Artwork is by Matt Canning. Songs from a Padded Envelope is a Hidden Hive production. (laughs) 